Okay, great. So I'm here with Danny Sriskandaraja. Hi, Danny. Hi, Rodri. Uh, and Danny is the chief executive of Oxfam GB, um, an organisation I'm sure that will need no introduction uh, to listeners to the podcast. Um, but maybe the, the best place for us to start, Danny, is if you could just say a bit in your own words about your background, kind of how you came to that role and what you see um, as your job there at Oxfam. Great. No, thanks. And it's great to join you on this podcast. I know lots of my uh, friends and colleagues are fans of this podcast. So it's a privilege to be here. Um, yeah, look, I joined Oxfam GB about a year ago. My um, background is, I suppose, in, in research. I uh, did a PhD in development, um, went on to work for a think tank and have, have been knocking about various civil society organizations, uh, a couple to do with the Commonwealth, and then for six years, uh, leading Civicus, the, the uh, global alliance of, uh, of civil society, um, and moved into this role last year. And um, I suppose for me, you know, this is um, an amazing creation of civic life. You know, Oxfam has been around for nearly 80 years. We have a presence in some 90 countries around the world. Um, and it's a sort of manifestation and embodiment of of so much that's good about civic life, life of citizens coming together to solve problems, in this case, global poverty, and not just by doing things, um, but also by changing things, you know, from the very outset, one of the things that, that excites me about Oxfam is it's always had this twin prong approach towards saving lives, delivering life-saving interventions in some of the most difficult parts of the world, but also acknowledging that that's not enough, that we have to change policies, challenge power and so in some ways, it's the best of, of civil society. But as your listeners probably know, it's also been a rough few years for Oxfam where we're trying to learn some very important lessons about, about how power works, um, what to do when power is abused. Um, and, you know, I think trustees here and my colleagues in, on staff feel that this is a moment for us to almost reimagine what a large NGO like this um, can do for the world. Um, and that's part of the sort of exciting, important journey that we're on. Great to hear. Um, and it certainly speaks to, you know, some of the issues we wanted to talk about in that wider context, which is, I think, it's, you know, it's an interesting and challenging moment for Oxfam itself as an organisation and organisations more broadly in international development. But also, I think, the very kind of notion of philanthropy is under a lot of scrutiny at the moment and raises some big questions about what its purpose and role is in society. In that broader context, what's your sort of take on that question of what role philanthropy ideally plays in society that differentiates it from state provision or, or the role of the market? So I suppose I draw on my experience from, from my time at Civicus in particular, because I do think that there's a really important role, arguably a more important role than ever for, for civic life, you know, activities, that um, uh, fall outside the, the market, the state, and, and maybe even the family, where human beings come together voluntarily um, for collective action to, to promote social good or make the world a better place or, or whatever vision we have. And, you know, just as civic formations are important, whether they're NGOs like this big one or, or small social movements or community groups, volunteer groups, it's also important that I think there are independent ways of resourcing that civic life and and for me you know philanthropy is a fundamental part of being human i mean i think there is a um 
a really important part of our own nature, which is about helping others, serving society, giving where we can. Um, and so sort of it's it's two sides of the same coin, if you will, that, you know, you need healthy, diverse, active, resilient, strong civic life. But in order to do that, you ideally need a strong resource base, and especially when you know when money is involved, that that resource base can come from from civic life. So I think um, you know, and it's an important lesson, especially for the larger bits of, of of civil society, because you know, as listeners probably will know, many formal bits of civil society have increasingly become funded by the state or, or market institutions. Um, and I think perhaps we can cover that a bit later. But I do think that this is, a, you know, the core of civic life has to be about people helping each other and philanthropy is at the heart of that. Um, you know, wh- where I've seen philanthropy at its best um, is, a, is an interesting question because I think um, the, the, the philanthropy can play this important pivotal role. It It, it does that, I think, when philanthropists, you know, whether they're big foundations or, or individual donors, sort of take a strategic, thoughtful role, um, uh, are clear about what they're trying to achieve, are conscious of the power and privilege they often hold in these relationships. And perhaps most interestingly, um, when they take risks, um, because, you know, this this sort of incredibly precious resource, this capital, um, I think is best served when it goes after Difficult issues, controversial issues, unpopular um, uh, methods, t- uh, pilots, new things. T- you know, so I think there is this sort of um, both a sort of fundamental part of the equation that philanthropy serves, but also this pivotal part of that equation where, it, when it's at its best, that it can support civil society. I think that's really interesting, and I, I guess um, the, my follow-up question is: if if one of the sort of key um, uh, justifications or rationales for philanthropy as a source of independent funding or, or funding that can support the independence and independence of civil society is around plurality and the kind of value of allowing people to have that that agency to support causes they care about um that isn't reliant on the state does does that lead more towards a vision of philanthropy that is about average donors or donors of a kind of reasonable level of wealth all giving to causes they care about and do we need to distinguish that from the form of philanthropy that is about those with extreme amounts of money uh, at their disposal who may be able to have a kind of outsized influence on on public policy or or where money is spent because it seems to me there might be a a kind of a fundamental qualitative difference between the two and the sorts of criteria that we might apply in assessing them do you, do you think we do need to distinguish a bit there well, I think it is, it's helpful, particularly for those of us who are sort of consumers of philanthropy, if you will, um, to think about um, how we nurture and support different types of philanthropy, but also how we, you know, get the best out of, of those different types of philanthropy and, and perhaps even hold to account those different bits. And, I, you know, I find it maybe it might be useful to think of it in, in three ways. I mean, there's a sort of generic philanthropy that's uh, you know, goes to the heart of the very word itself of all of us acting as humans and, and uh, in support of others. Um, and, you know, I know organizations like CAF do a huge amount to understand the nature of giving and support um, all the different sorts of, uh, of giving that goes on. Then there's a sort of second order of, uh, um, of 
of, inst- of institutionalized philanthropy, if you will. There are those bits where you know that it's a little bit more formal, um, where there might be a registered ent- entity doing this. There might be you know arm's length professional board or whatever else it is. And then the third bit, which is the one that I suppose you're referring to, is is the outsized bits of it. You know, there is a um, for better or for worse. We you know in today's world, um, some of the most influential actors on certainly for from a civil society point of view, certainly from for anyone interested in social change or social justice, are these outsized philanthropic institutions. Um, and I think it is perhaps useful to treat them as as distinct because you know if you take the international development um, sector, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation is now I think the second or third biggest um, donor um, in in the sort of in the aid sector, um, and that's uh, you know that's a world away from the small trusts and foundations that are sort of often the, um, provide the bread and butter support for most of civil society. Absolutely. Um, and one thing I, I wanted to ask you, actually, given um, a lot of focus uh, of um, Oxfam's work over the last few years has been to highlight issues around wealth inequality. That's obviously a big challenge facing society. And it's particularly pertinent when it comes to philanthropy, because it is something that philanthropy can aim to address. But equally, you could argue that philanthropy in, in many forms is a reflection of that inequality. So whether it can ever genuinely be used as a tool to to address the fundamental issues is is a live question what's what's your sort of take on how we understand the role of philanthropy in relation to inequality and to the sort of arguments that oxfam's made in favor of things like wealth taxes so i think i mean maybe i'm i'm too relaxed about this but i think i can hold to um, ideas that may seem contradictory together in my head at once and uh, you know on one side of the equation i think that um, Oxfam and many others uh, are deeply concerned about rising levels of, of inequality, of, of, of extreme, eye-watering, um, worrying levels of, 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 of inequality. Um, but on the other hand, I think there is a, a, an obligation, an opportunity for us to um, make sure that the philanthropy that does exist, that results in part because of that um, wealth accumulation of that inequality, is um, spent as effectively, as impactfully as possible. Um, so on the, on the first of those questions, I think there is you know, really worrying evidence that we are in an era of extreme inequality that, um, you know, as Oxfam research has shown year after year, a handful of people own more wealth than than the than half the world's population, that inequality is rising in most societies, um, whichever way you want to look at it. Um, and we need to do something about it. And you know what's in, you know particularly interesting for me in recent months has been the activities of of, um, of initiatives like the Patriotic Millionaires, a, 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 a group coming out of America of people who are themselves millionaires and billionaires who are calling for action on on wealth inequality, in particular on higher taxes, um, so that we have uh, we tackle uh, inequality. So I think. Um, there is a, a really important piece of the puzzle there. Um, I mean, even Bill Gates, I think, in his in one of his latest messages, said, uh, you know, acknowledge that a few people end up with a 
great deal, while many others just you know struggle to get by. And he was calling for a tax system in which if you have more money, you pay a higher percentage in taxes. So I think there is a, a, a sort of a, a side of the equation in which we have to think about how do we deliver a more equitable, fair society for all of us. And it's interesting to see and hear um, you know, philanthropists um, themselves or high net worth individuals themselves acknowledge the importance of that. Um, but I think that's a sort of slightly separate question from, well, you know, we live in a world in which philanthropy is critical. And therefore, you know, that those resources that are out there, we, um, you know, A, encourage them to um, encourage uh, high net worth individuals to give. And this is why initiatives like the Giving Pledge and, and others are important. Uh, and that, that philanthropy is done, again, as I said, in a sort of as impactful a, a way as possible. Um, and there is, you know, I'm, I'm really encouraged by the fact that there is, I think, a sort of growing awareness that it's, you know, giving away money is not as easy as it sounds. I certainly found that I've sat on the board of a, a couple of philanthropic institutions, the Bering Foundation and Comic Relief, and have learned a huge amount about the fact that this, there is a an art and a science, if you will, to um, to effective philanthropy. And I think the world will be a better place if if um, people do take a more considered approach um, to to philanthropy. Absolutely. And it's, it's good to hear you say that, because I mean, I, I agree, I don't think there should be any cognitive dissonance between being broadly positive about the, you know, the ongoing value of philanthropy as an idea, and also thinking that it might not be okay for a small number of people to have such extraordinary levels of wealth, and that actually, you know, wealth tax or some similar mechanism imposed at, at the right level can perfectly easily be squared with that. Um, I think just building on, on what you were saying there at the end about um, you know the, the challenges when it comes to giving away philanthropy, it also it sort of strikes me that as well as raising questions about alternative mechanisms such as taxation for addressing issues of inequality, there are questions about whether the way in which we do philanthropy can also contribute towards reducing inequality. And and a lot of the discussion in, in sort of recent times on that has focused around the idea that um, we need to shift power as well as financial resources in the models of philanthropy we used. Is that something that you're thinking about a lot at Oxfam and kind of how does that manifest itself in, in the organisation's work? Yeah, no. Look, I mean, just to go back to what, what, what the early part of your question around the, the fact that, you know, I do think that, you know, why the campaigns around, for example, wealth taxes are important is because, you know, what history suggests that the greatest leaps forward in, in social justice, in, in human development have happened when there have been healthy, well-resourced um, public institutions that provide that sort of social safety net. And I think one of our concerns at Oxfam is that um, across the world, we are seeing um, uh, uh, sort of public services at stretch. And certainly in the developing world, um, you know, it will be it will be necessary to invest in in those sort of public resources in safe in good quality um, free public services, so that we can, for example, end the job on on and finish the job on ending extreme poverty. So, I think there is a a correlation there that's important to recognise, and you know, important to recognise that a tiny fragment of the global tax take, for example, comes from. From wealth taxes, um, as it stands, only four p in every pound of tax global globally collected. So, I think that it's important to to talk about that aspect. But you're right; it's not only about that. And um, I think 
you know, one of the lessons that Oxfam is learning um, over, over these last couple of years is that the how matters almost as much as the what. Um, you know, organizations like us have have focused um, uh, on, on getting things done. You know, we've been out there saving lives, for example. But I think that what's becoming clear to me, certainly, is that how you go about that is 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 really important that if you know for example if in the course of of, of saving lives um you're doing harm to some lives that's not good enough and we need to hold ourselves to a higher standards i think it's the same with um with something like um you know, philanthropy more generally, and I'm particularly excited by models of participatory um, philanthropy of of some of these really cutting edge examples in which philanthropic institutions themselves share power um, and try to sort of um, take head on the sort of tyranny of donors that we sometimes see, and so that the the act of philanthropy itself, if you will, is itself emancipatory. Um, and I think I, I really you know uh, admire and um, uh, those sorts of examples. And and coming back to Oxfam, I do hope as we we're setting a new strategy for the next ten years, um, I hope that we can also um, learn from some of those examples and perhaps um, in our own practice find ways of of sharing shifting. Um, power. Um, you know, at the end of the day, Oxfam is a about a billion euro turnover institution globally. Um, and compared to the rest of civil society, we are mammoth. And I think that comes with a responsibility to, to share our own resources, our power in a thoughtful and empowering way. And, you know, we often talk about um, you know, our organizations like ours, a, a super tanker trying to become a flotilla. And I think there's some value there. But really, my ambition is that we're, you know, a super tanker when we need to be, when we need to go and challenge global norms or change policy, influence the World Bank or whatever else it is. But we're also a dockyard for others that we are there for for activists, for um, for social movements, for smaller NGOs um, who can benefit from the resources we have, the cover we might be able to give. Um, and I think that's, you know, that goes to the heart of this notion of uh, of shifting power. I think what, what you were saying there at the, the end is fascinating because I, I, I think I'm, I'm extremely sort of enthusiastic about the idea of, um, of participatory approaches as well. But I do wonder sometimes in the rhetoric um, espousing them whether there's not enough acknowledgement that those models themselves have limits and that actually if you if you just sort of see decentralization or shifting power down to the lowest level as always the answer the danger is that then you limit the ability of organizations to potentially do advocacy at the, at the required scale so actually the, as you say the ability to flip between the two and to take the right approach dependent on what you're trying to achieve at any one time seem, seems absolutely vital um, on that, there's a lot of focus, I guess, at the moment um, on that idea of um, a kind of shift away from formal organisations towards networks and movements. Um, you know, it's not a new thing, but I guess technology is kind of making it easier to form organisations in those sorts of ways. So people are, are are kind of looking to those models. What kind of opportunities do you see there for an organisation like Oxfam to harness some of that energy or to work with some of those organizations or and and you know conversely what sort of challenges do you potentially see if people are looking to to those sorts of approaches more well i think in order to answer the oxfam question i think we have to at least address or think about a more fundamental question that i think is facing civil society around the world which is what are the types of civic formations 
that are going to um, be able to uh, deliver positive change in, in years or decades to come. I think the assumption, certainly the sort of late 20th century assumption, certainly in, in the Anglo-Saxon world, has been that these sort of registered inst- institutions, registered charities, if you will, or, or non-profits, um, are sort of the epitome of social action, that we have these formalized professionalized bits of civil society that will be able to deliver high quality interventions. And that's been hugely important and, and should be celebrated. But, you know, on the on the other hand, um, when I look around and see, you know, where is the cutting edge of social action? And I see social movements, I see online movements, I see spontaneous action, I see someone like Greta Thunberg arguably doing more um, to build awareness of the climate emergency than, you know, a, a range of institutions have been able to do together over years. Um, and so you might say, well, you know, you, you need both. Um, and that's probably right that, you you know, we need what formal institutionalized bits of civil society can uh, can offer. You know, we need we need paid people and we need bank accounts and formal annual reports to um, in some bits of civil society. But that needs to coexist um, uh, with um, more spontaneous, uh, less formal, uh, more dispersed, often more online um, it's, it's aspects of civic life, and um, I think for 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 all of civil society, we have to sort of work out, including for philanthropists, presumably, we have to work out. Well, you know, how do we nurture an ecosystem that does get the requisite balance or the, the appropriate balance between formal and informal, online and offline? Um, and um, that's a you know that's the landscape in which I think Oxfam, as a global confederation, is 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 trying to uh, navigate. Um, I think we have to think about what what's our value add as a as a um, as a uh, big institution in this in this ecosystem. You know why is big beautiful here? What can we do that's distinctive and value added? Uh, and I think you know the good news is I do think there's some really important advantages of having big global civil society formations that can deploy across the world that can connect people that can promote a sense of of internationalism of international solidarity um, but on the other hand if we you know uh, uh, end up just sort of becoming self-serving becoming too corporate with hard boundaries between us and the rest of the world then i think we're lost and so the challenge for, for the likes of us i think is to work out what are those interfaces how do we nurture and support um, uh, social movements how do we make sure that we are globally balanced in our own um, makeup you know we like many of the bigger bits of civil society have come out of the global north we are founded in places like the uk or the us we're generally funded by donors and individuals in the global north and increasingly therefore look a little bit out of date and anachronistic when it comes to the way that i think um, the power is shifting of uh, and so there's a there's a bunch of challenges here for us i think as we think about you know how do we reimagine this in the case of Oxford found this 80-year-old billion euro turnover institution and repurpose it for the, the you know, the, the global challenges that don't seem to be going away, whether it's climate change, whether it's inequality, whether it's the enduring extreme poverty. There's no shortage of challenges, but I think we have, a, um, we have to uh, reimagine and repurpose ourselves if we're going to make a real dent on some of those global challenges. 
Absolutely, yeah. And and do you do you see either sort of for Oxfam or more broadly for funders there being a challenge, even where they do kind of buy into the the importance of um, new organisational forms or kind of looser organisational forms and want to support grassroots movements and networks, that even if they're doing this with the best of intentions, in, in that engagement between sort of large formalised institutions and, and some of these, these new kind of grassroots movements, there is a danger of, of unintended consequences. I know some scholars have kind of looked into this and identified the possibility of movement capture. So where a funder even where it doesn't want to by sheer virtue of its scale kind of shifts the emphasis of a movement or imposes restrictions on it without meaning to that that kind of undermine um, what it was trying to do in the first place. Are those the sorts of considerations that you would you would see funders needing to be very aware of if they are going to to shift towards funding these new types of organizations yes absolutely and i think that is the the sort of you know when i talked about sort of thoughtful empowering philanthropy or considered a philanthropy i think that's it's really important that those those involved in philanthropy do um learn the lessons of 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 others and um uh, you know for me there's a um there there is a challenge here for so that's sort of maybe analogous to to philanthropists and um organizations or bigger organizations like like the oxfams of the world and that's um you know, how do we um deploy the the power and resource the privilege the profile that we have um in an in an appropriate way and sometimes you know, the very worst thing that we can do is to try to um, sort of directly engage, potentially co-opt and damage a grassroots movement or, a, um, you know, by introducing our systems, our processes, our money, our requirements, uh, amongst all sorts of other dangers that, that might exist. And so I think there is a, um, you know, one lesson I learned from from some work we did at Civic is we did a state of civil society re- um, report, a sort of annual flagship report, and dedicated it to this notion of how do we resource civil society. And one of the many lessons that that I learned from that process is that there probably does need to be a sort of um, a thickening of uh, the sort of intermediaries, the fundermediaries, if you might call them, um, that might act as as these sort of thoughtful, effective intermediaries in these sort of financial transactions, because uh, and and there's some this is not starting from new. There are some great examples. I think the women's uh, rights movements have some fantastic examples of, of women's rights funds, regionally based ones or indigenous um, ones, for example, that have acted as as sort of thoughtful fundermediaries that can broker relationships, but also broker money. So they take funds from the global north in in particular, and I think for from larger bits of uh, of land. Um, but sort of devolve that decision making um, uh, and or act as an intermediary, if you will, um, and allow for their the sort of space and the the sort of independence, if you will, of of the, of the networks that they're working with. But in the process, of course, also, I mean, why I say devolve is they devolve some of the power around how resources are then allocated closer to the ground, closer to the um, to the activists, if you will. Um, 
and you know i think that there again there are some really positive exciting developments of that sort of next generation fundamentaries that are exist and and you might argue that perhaps that's one way that the international ngos will also go because at the end of the day many of these large institutions ended up becoming large because we are fundamentaries you know we take money from bilateral aid donors or large private philanthropy foundations who don't have the time the interest or the wherewithal to be able to work globally who don't know all of the relevant local actors in in contexts all around the world and and the ingo networks or confederations end up sort of acting as a broker if you will um and being able to do that now you some would argue that we've done that sometimes in very unhelpful ways by by crowding others out or hogging power and resources uh, and i hope again the aspiration for oxfam is to be uh, much more intentional and thoughtful in in how we use that privileged position as an intermediary yeah, that's, I mean, absolutely fascinating stuff. I could, I could keep talking about this topic for, for a lot longer than we've got. So I just wanted to shift um, slightly to, to something that I think kind of touches upon quite a lot of what you've said already in in this potentially, you know, important new relationship between funders and movements. One of the one of the kind of the elements that, that underpins quite a lot of aspects of that, it seems to me, is trust, whether that's trust between the donor organization and the recipient and kind of, you know, having the the faith that they will spend the money um, uh, appropriately. Um, But also the kind of wider question of where the public uh, has trust and whether that is increasingly in these new sort of movements and grasswork networks, uh, grassroots networks, or whether it's in traditional institutions. What, I mean, what's your take on, on the sort of idea that declining levels of trust in institutions more broadly um, are affecting civil society, and in what sort of different ways do you see that playing out? I think we should be we should be aware of um, of broad generalizations because you know I I had read and often cited that sort of data that's about falling in trust in institutions, and uh, and then I came to an organisation like Oxfam, and what I've discovered here is is fascinating. You know, yes, the public profile of Oxfam, and especially in a country like the UK, has taken a hit in in recent years because of uh, of the scandals that um, um, uh, that we've been associated with. But on the other hand. You know, on any given day, there are hundreds of thousands of people in the in the UK alone, and maybe millions across the world, who continue to support us. People donate money to us, buy things from our 600 shops in the UK. They donate things to our shops. Uh, they are part of our volunteer networks. They volunteer. You know, there's a sort of really important um, network of, of 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 support and engagement that continues to surprise and inspire me. You know, I was on the phone with the with a shop volunteer just the other day and, and, and hearing the sort of really interesting, meaningful relationship that the volunteer has with, with an institution like this. So I think there is something really sophisticated um, going on here um, that we can only, under, you know, perhaps it, it just it, it depends on the, on, on the institution to a, to a large extent. Um, but I think what is clear, though, is that when sort of the bigger bits of, of, of society, whether it's, you know, big NGOs or big business or whatever, um, are sort of seen to lack transparency, that are seen to act in their sort of self-interest, that are more obsessed with brand than impact. Um, I think that's when trust takes a, um, a, a hiding. And that's, you know, I think that's a, there's a lesson there that we've got to not just be sort of 
open and transparent. I think that particular genie cannot be put back in the bottle and all institutions in society have got to be much more open about that, including private philanthropy, you know, arguably one of the more opaque bits of, 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 of social life or of society. Um, but I think that the opportunity is to go beyond that, is to sort of come up with meaningful ways in which we do engage our our supporters. You know, gone are the days when institutions like us can say, you know, there are rich donors and, and supporters on one side and poor beneficiaries on the other. And we are the big, you know, in our case, big green trusted box that acts as intermediary where we just say to both sides, look, trust us. We know what we're doing. That's important in some ways. We have to, you know, we have to retain that expertise, the safeguards, the credibility. Um, but you know, I think the rest of the 21st century is, is going to be a much more disrupt. It's going to disrupt that model entirely, and we're going to be needing to, you know, engage though all of those stakeholders in a much more interesting creative way and that's again comes back to the sort of value add of these sort of global formations because if we can do that but also do it in a way that connects people globally you know that builds from below but also beyond borders then i think that, you know that's going to be really important because especially in an era when you know we need global civic solutions to some of these global challenges where we need to build global consciousness and movements. Um, I think civil society actors and I hope philanthropy can support um, these sort of initiatives that can do that more um, more thoughtfully. Absolutely. And I think that, that link that you identify there potentially between trust as an issue, which as you say is a lot more complicated than sometimes presented, and participation seems to me really interesting and important and I, I do wonder whether some of the the enthusiasm for involvement in in kind of movements and networks is is partly because you know participation is integral to those models so actually people can't help but be involved and that sort of naturally breeds trust because it's it's not seen as something distant it's something that you are yourself a part of um um, I just just want to go on because I'm aware that, that we've got uh, limited time. But I, I'm, another issue that's potentially enormous that, that I wanted to talk to you about um, is the the obvious kind of major challenge of our time around climate change and the climate crisis. I know this is something that Oxfam is kind of increasingly focusing on and speaking out about. Um, and I just wanted to ask you because it, it may seem to some people slightly unusual because Oxfam is not a you know an environmental organisation as most people would understand it. But what your kind of thinking is behind focusing on the issue and whether Oxfam views the climate crisis primarily as an environmental issue and is shifting in that direction or whether you see it as a, a social justice issue and therefore kind of very much in line with your traditional core mission well i mean you're right that many people like me would think that oxfam is a sort of more traditional you know poverty organization but again i've been pleasantly surprised to discover that for decades now this organization has been talking about uh, environment and sustainability perhaps not in such a high profile way someone uh, one of my colleagues gave me the the December 1975 issue of the Oxfam magazine, um, a very special month in my life. Um, and it, you know, it was an entire issue devoted to sustainability, including a sort of center page um, sort of fold out, which had a picture of the planet and says, we only have one planet. Um, and, you know, a, a few, a couple of years later, we opened our waste saver plant, which we think, to, you know, has been going on um, uh, 
uh, till today and is, is probably Britain's largest fabric recycling facility where we collect some of the material, that, the, the clothing that we can't sell in our shops and, 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 and recycle it as effectively as possible so that none of it goes to landfill. So this is an organization that's, I think, thought about sustainability in, in, in for a long time and in some very sophisticated ways. But you know, the climate emergency is a reality. It is upon us and we are seeing the impact of climate breakdown in the places that we work around the world. And sort of the reality that we're grappling with is that, yes, we've got to do all of these things to reduce the world's carbon emissions, to take action so that we protect our future. But it's also critical that we protect the lives and livelihoods of the world's poorest and most marginalized communities. You know, when I was in Zimbabwe visiting some of our program there, it's clear that, you know, some of the farmers in in Zimbabwe are already having to deal with the impacts of more frequent weather events, especially drought. Um, that some of their their sort of farming patterns, some of their um, even the sort of the seeds that they're using uh, are no longer coping with with changing weather patterns. And so already in a poor and very vulnerable, fragile context, climate change is starting to wreak havoc. And um, I think that's the sort of core part of the Oxfam messaging in, in now and and for many you know in years to come which is that it's really important that um we we deal with the the sort of the real impacts of, of climate breakdown on 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 the poorest parts of the of the world um you know including through um, extreme weather events you know we've seen wildfires in australia we've seen some of the worst um cyclones in in southern africa we've seen droughts in east africa and um so climate change is exacerbating some of those issues that we've been working on for decades. And I think we do um, have an obligation to to address both the sort of the, the impacts of those those adverse events, but also obviously the drivers of, of, of climate change. Absolutely. Um, one one issue I, I wanted to ask you about on that, because um, I know it's something that some people raise as a as a challenge um, when it comes to addressing the issues around the climate crisis, um, in particularly in the context of international development, is whether sometimes there there is a tension between the the actions that people say are necessary to address things address things on the environmental side. So whether that's things like um, rewilding or tree planting um, and these sort of preservation of the natural world, and empowerment and respecting the kind of rights and freedoms and and uh you know uh, democratic rights of local communities where sometimes it seems as though if if the solution that some people propose is to buy up large tracts of land and, and preserve them from economic development that's fine if you're on the other side of the world but actually for the people who are there who would like to use that economic development to further their own life chances that potentially could be pretty problematic are those the sorts of challenges that that you're finding you have to navigate at Oxfam? Well, I mean, I should answer that at two levels. Yes, you're right. There are, um, um, you know, deep and difficult tensions between, you know, I suppose perhaps simplistically saying people and planet that we've got some, you know, in, 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 in every context, there are going to be tough decisions and trade-offs that need to be reconciled around um, how do we make sure that we achieve sort of sustainable development and, and, and some of those choices. But at the macro level, um, this is a, a really important issue. You know, if if you read some of the the projections about how we get the world to net zero um, and how we meet these ambitious targets around uh, climate reduction, and you'll see a lot of that depends on taking carbon out of the air 
by, for example, you know, planting more forests around the world. And if you add up all of the calculations and all of the assumptions that are being made, then the sort of volumes of land needed to be able to do that, um, especially in, in the global south, where a lot of rich countries are offsetting their carbon um, uh, um, consumption, um, is is un, uh, just completely un, unrealistic. It's untenable. I mean, not only are some of those, you know, that that land doesn't exist, but that land is also needed to provide provide sustainable livelihoods for some of the world's poorest and and, and most marginalised uh, people. So I think there is a, you know, th- notwithstanding some of the difficulties of those trade offs at every scale, I think there is an urgent need to try to bring the sort of um, the, the 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 sustainability. Um, uh, uh, conversation together with a more traditional, long-standing development um, uh, conversation in a in a more meaningful way, and also hold our politicians to account. You know, we we live in a country in the UK where there's been some really good leadership on climate change um, and some great promises made. But if you look at the fact that the UK is still financing fossil fuel development in other parts of the world, um, if you take the sort of pledges made by by rich countries, not only have they not met their actual numeric, you know, financial pledges on on, on climate finance, but a lot of that um, is not being addressed to help the sort of adaptation in the poorest parts of the world. So um, I think there is a, a, a really difficult but urgent set of challenges here. Absolutely. Um, and I, I just want to, to touch um, finally before I, before I let you go, Danny, um, on, on something that, that um, is linked in that it's kind of another one of the big areas, I think, where people have identified that we're going to face significant challenges over the, the coming years. And that is around the, the impact that technological development is going to have on our society or is arguably already having. I mean, what's your take on that as it um, kind of more broadly, but particularly how it applies to Oxfam's work and how the organization's thinking about it. And do you kind of generally take a reasonably positive view of technological development or are you, you know, veering more towards the pessimistic? So I'm generally an optimist, so I can't help but being one in this area as well. But uh, I think there are two, two reasons to be concerned um, that are really important for us all, not just for the Oxfam's of the world. Um, w- w- one is that th- you know, we are living in this sort of age of unprecedented change, as you know, driven by the digital revolution or the technological revolution, and that is bringing with it huge opportunities. But it's also at risking sort of deepening some of the inequalities that are facing the world. So, you know, some some of us who are lucky enough to live in the rich world are benefiting from all sorts of efficiencies and disruptions that technology is providing. But unfortunately, those are not yet translated to um, the poorer parts of the world. If you take gender inequality, um, colleagues of mine have been doing some fantastic research that shows that actually the sort of upsides of, of the digital revolution are not being shared by women equally with men. And in fact, some uh, there are some really important downsides um, to how the digital revolution could actually be harming women around the world, certainly around reinforcing gender norms, um, failing to create safe spaces for women. And I could go on that sort of that sort of digi-qualities, if you will, digital inequalities are being exacerbated in this era. And I think, I hope organizations like Oxfam can pay some attention to that, but I hope also progressive philanthropists can can really support initiatives that, that you know, if they're interested in making the world a fairer, more equal place, I think they need, they cannot ignore uh, the risks posed by, um, by digital um, or, and technological um, uh, developments. 
And the second one is around um, uh, sort of norms and rules in the digital era. I think what's begun, I had the privilege of being asked by the UN Secretary General to serve on a high-level panel, um, co-chaired by Melinda Gates and, and Jack Ma from Alibaba, uh, looking at digital cooperation. And, and what was clear during that process is you know, that, that, that some of the, the norms, the rules um, that will govern digital life are uh, are being set um, often by a small number of, of private actors well away from the scrutiny of, of, of policymakers and certainly of, of members of the public. Um, and that, you know, we are hurtling into the sort of wild west, if you will, uh, the digital wild west. And if we are to protect human rights, civic freedoms, um, uh, and of course, protect a multilateral order that can have any chance of, of governing um, in this arena, then we, we need to act quickly. And I think that's another area where um, we, we and I hope many others um, can ensure, you know, and there's, you know, there is the, the change is so dramatic that you can imagine that, you know, what's at stake here is not just sort of human rights as we currently know them, but, you know, even what it means to be human. You know the nature. What are some of the stuff I've been seeing around what's happening with artificial intelligence and uh, and and automation, five G. You know these are things that are going to go to the heart of what it means to be human. And my worry um, is that sort of thoughtful policymakers, um, uh, uh, civil society activists are are being sort of left behind while. Technology companies, engineers, pioneers are doing what they, you know, need to be doing in inventing and, and developing. Um, but we need to sort of catch up very quickly if we're going to bring a sort of sensible set of, of, of rules and norms um, that are in the in the wider interests of society. Absolutely, and and j just as a final question, I, I wonder whether that brings us back to the the topic of power. And uh, you know, I've been involved in some of those discussions around. Um, you know where things are going in the fourth industrial revolution and the impact of technologies like AI, and it it does strike me that there, there aren't enough civil society organisations funders involved in those discussions anyway. But even where they are, there are potentially quite significant power imbalances between the tech industry and the policymakers, and particularly sort of grassroots civil society organisations that are trying to speak up about some of these potential issues when it comes to rights or the impact on marginalised communities. Do you think there's more to be done to try and find ways of overcoming that power imbalance and allowing the the voice of grassroots civil society to inform those debates. No, I think that's a very nice way of, of putting it and perhaps concluding this discussion because it is about um, it, it's about power and I think whichever way you look at it, some of those old forms of power, institutions, if you will, uh, are being challenged. Um, there are new forms of power that are developing driven by technological um, revolution or new social formations. Um, and so the sort of power landscape is changing around us very quickly. And I think there are, I mean, perhaps, again, this is just sort of initial um, uh, musings, if you will, perhaps there are three lessons for us here, at least. One is to understand those changes. And I think any of us who are interested in trying to make the world a a better place need to understand how power indeed is changing um, because you know some of those assumptions we might have made some of those interventions we might once have made are, are unlikely to be as effective in this uh, in this changing landscape secondly is around sort of modeling um, behaviors creating structures and institutions that are conscious 
of, of power. Uh, this is, comes back to my point about the how being almost as important as the as the what. Um, and that, you know, or, or, or the point you were raising around participation, that we are creating institutions and mechanisms that that disperse power in a thoughtful way, that do engage people in a truly meaningful way. Um, and I think that's a there's a sort of design question or a design opportunity here for all of us, whether you're, you know, a private philanthropist or a, a big NGO. I think the question is, what are the sort of mechanisms in which you are going to to share power and and how are you going to hold yourself to account on on that and the third is around challenging power that um you know as i said right at the beginning to me you know philanthropy is at its best when it takes risks and when it does help others or, or it does it itself it, it, it speaks truth to power and challenges power because tinkering here and there and a few band-aid solutions here and there are not going to solve adequately the big global challenges that we're facing. And some of that will need systemic overhaul um, and, a, and a sort of systemic redesign. And that may not be, you know, many philanthropists may not have the appetite or the wherewithal to take on some of that, but I certainly hope that some will and do. And without that, without that sort of pivotal, risk-taking, pioneering, brave role for philanthropy, um, civil society is not going to be a, a, as able to take on some of those challenges. So, you know, I, I wish for a world where we do have more resilient, strong, brave, risk-taking civil society. But in order for that to happen, we need um, uh, the sort of equivalence in, in the sort of philanthropic world. And if there's a takeaway from this conversation, that will be mine. Uh, that will be my request. Uh, there you go. Excellent. And and what a, a great and neat way, way to finish up. So it just remains to say thanks ever so much, Danny, for agreeing to, to come on the podcast and taking the time. It's been great to have uh, the opportunity to talk to you. Um, you know, maybe at some point, you know, a few years down the line, we can uh, bend your arm and get you to come back on and see where we've got to on some of these issues. Yeah, I can share with you our learnings of, of, of from Oxfam in a few years' time. That would be great. All right. Thanks a lot.